Welcome back to Remember What's Next, Season 2, with author, rabbi, Israeli tour guide, and historian Ken Spiro, and myself, JFI director and educator Ellie Bass. This is a show where we look to the past in order to understand the present and plan for a better future. And this season, we're touring Israel and learning about each place and its part in our history and our lives as a Jewish people today. Okay, let's do this. Welcome back, everyone, to Remember What's Next. Um, Ken, good to see you. Um, what's happening in Israel? Are there any digs going on? There are digs. I still haven't made it back to the one. I'm, I'm hope, every week I say I'm going. I'm really hoping next week I do go. <coughs> Things have been went from very quiet to getting very busy again, thankfully. Excellent. So, uh, yes, but digs are absolutely going on. My, my sister informs me, the dig that we both dig in, that they're getting there at the first temple. They're getting down to bedrock wow. there. So I better get back before they uh, run out of stuff to dig because they're pretty much going to finish with the site within a year or so uh, and really cool. have to move on elsewhere. So uh, yeah, but definitely the digging is never ending. Amazing. You could dig, you could dig for a hundred years more in Israel and you wouldn't, you wouldn't get to 20% of what there is to discover. Wow. That is so super cool. Awesome. Okay. So we'll keep an eye out. We'll be listening for whatever you find. Ellie, one day um, you'll come visit and we'll do like a live podcast from the dig. I would love that. God willing soon. And um, that would be amazing. I'll bring in fact, you. I'll I do bring you. We'll get you to dig for a day. Really? All right. I'm in. Sure. I'm totally in. I love that idea. Um, yeah. And I actually do want to talk to you at some point because I've had a few people say, you know, could Ken take us on a couple little tours around Israel while none of us can travel. So I think that's yeah, something that we need that. to talk about. Awesome. Okay, good. All right. So, um, but let's dig into what we were actually going to speak about today, which is we've been doing sort of a podcast tour a little bit of Israel. Um, and we wanted to move on to um, one of my favorite places. I know I say that about everywhere. It's like a rabbi talking about the Parsha. This is my favorite Parsha. No, this one is. So for me, Tel Aviv, um, Yafo is, um, is such a special place. I think it's because it's the first place that I ever went to and stayed in Israel way before I was even Jewish. I spent a lot of time in Tel Aviv. Um, and so I have a real soft spot for that place. So um, you know, and I have these incredible uh, photographs that I found to show my kids of, I believe it was 1903 and, and the pioneers standing in this desert swamp. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And 1909. It's just unbelievable. And showing yeah, 66 them. people with the uh, doing the seashells. Incredible. Yeah, so in just day. over a hundred years, it has become not just a metropolis, but one of the most expensive pieces of real estate in the entire world. And yeah. the heartland of um, tech and startup. So uh, how would we even begin with Tel Aviv? What should we do? Right. right. Well, before we start with Tel Aviv, uh, that was a sand dune in 1909, we have to go a little bit to the south. Because um, Tel Aviv is actually one of the places, almost everywhere you are in Israel, anything new is built on something old. And Tel Aviv actually is, is, is new. And by, by Israel standards, 1909 is like, like, like preschool. Right, um, like yesterday. <laughs> but, 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 so 1909 in America is like, oh, it's old. Um, Canada, it's even, even newer, even older, excuse me. Uh, but we have to move a little to the south of Tel Aviv to start in Jaffa. 
which is much, 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 much older, one of the oldest areas of inhabitation in Israel that we can identify from even external historical sources is, is Jaffa and the port. Um, and to understand Jaffa's significance, we have to do, you know, a lot of, I always, when I do history, I like to talk about what's called big history. People kind of hyper-focus on individuals, dates, events, but so much of history has nothing to do with that. It has more to do with geography, climate, uh, economics, agriculture. They play a huge role, why certain places developed and other places didn't, why certain places were conquered so often, other places weren't, has a lot to do with where they are, located in the world. And, and, and uh, you know, if we pull back and look, I know most of us are not experts in geography. It's not a strong point of, I think, of Americans or Canadians. Um, I always quote that quote from Ambrose Spears, who wrote during the American Civil War. He said, war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. Right. So, <laughs> and but, in Canada, it's incredibly boring. So we just don't even right. pay attention. When we talk, about, we talk about Western civilization, it's really, it's really built up around the Mediterranean, which is an inland sea. And it's really the center of, you know, now we have the United States and South and Central America, Canada, you know, North America, but those places were, you know, unknown to the centers of civilization in the Far East and in the West. So the Mediterranean was the place where people traveled on and being on the Mediterranean was always a significant location in terms of trade and travel. And depending upon where in the Mediterranean you were based on other things, like where was the wheat being grown, where were the cash crops coming out of. So it happens to be that Israel, the coast of Israel, and Israel has a, quite a long coastline for a small country, um, is sets on a very significant trade route, which is called in, in Latin, the Via Maris, the way of the sea, which is a trade where people would, you know, travel before you had, uh, especially air travel, you had to walk to get to places. So traveling up and down through hills is not so easy. Right. Walking along the coasts or through valleys is a lot easier. Much of Israel's travel routes are based on accessibility and ease of travel. So in the ancient world, people often travel along the coast of Israel and Jaffa sits on that coast. Um, and from there, you could go up to what is, you know, the Anatolian area, which is Turkey of today or down to Egypt, ancient, very important ancient civilizations. You can head, once you head up past Jaffa to the north and you hit the Mount Carmel mountain range, which kind of juts almost out into the Mediterranean, you can take a little right turn through the Jezreel, Emek Israel Valley and head down to the Sea of Galilee and then up to the Golan Heights and be Damascus and Syria. So these are really important ancient cities. Hmm. And again, they have very strategically important. So empires throughout history like to control places like this. You know, jumping to a different part of Israel, you know, the, the, uh, that Jezreel Valley, which was fortified a lot by King Solomon. He built, you know, Hatzor, Gezer, Megiddo, these big chariot cities there because it was such an important trade route. Um, Megiddo is where the term Armageddon comes from. It's a, it's a bastardization of the word because it was in Christian thinking that was such a strategically important place. You know, the obviously the end of days battles are you know going to be fought there. You know, you travel through the Jezreel Valley today. It's kind of hard to imagine. It's very bucolic, you know, very rustic. That that's the place where the we think of major European capitals today as the more likely setting for those events. But also Jaffa, again, very, very important. And it's mentioned all the way back 3,500 years ago, which is like the Middle Bronze period, time of Abraham, uh, written by it's the, the Egyptian pharaoh Tutmos uh, III. There, there's mention, mentions, mentions Jaffa because this was a, a basically a colonial area a colonial area occupied by the Egyptian empire. Israel 
has historically been sandwiched. One of the points I make when I'm teaching my students history is again, that Israel, it's a blessing and a curse, the location of Israel. Uh, we're supposed to be a light to nations. And I always say if Abraham had lived in like Washington state or, you know, or Vancouver, would have taken a long time for anyone to find the guy, literally right. thousands of years later. Um, that, so if we're supposed to be influencing the world, be the great middleman of so much stuff, including the middleman between God and humanity, we're in a great location to interact with the earliest civilizations of the Western world, which are basically uh, Egypt and, you know, these uh, Mesopotamia, which is the word for the land between the two rivers. It's a Greek word. Hmm. Doesn't mean the Hudson and the Mississippi. We're talking about the Tigris and Euphrates and uh, great civilizations are going to spring up. When you say civilizations, we're talking about um, writing, uh, you know, a domestication of, of livestock and, 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 and uh, farming where you have a surplus of food so population can grow. Then you get a stratification of society and different levels and craftsmen and, and farmers and, and, and nobility and priests and culture and cities. And all that is an outgrowth of economic development and where you are. And, and the, the earliest civilizations in the Western world pop up on either side of us to the, to the, to the, you know, to the West and the, and the South, it's going to be Egypt, which is the longest, oldest static civilization in the ancient world surviving thousands of years. And to the North and the East, it's that Mesopotamia, which is a land between two rivers, but because it's a great floodplain has no natural defenses like Switzerland has the Alps. A lot of civilizations are going to move through and conquer. You're going to have the Assyrian and the Babylonian, the Persian empires, all of which play a story in Israel in general and in Jaffa, uh, being a central port area. Uh, so Israel sandwiched in there. So the blessing is for trade. Everyone's going through our territory historically. But the, the curse is that I always kind of jokingly say we're sort of like Belgium in a lot of ways. I always jokingly say I hope there's no Belgian people listening. I always call Belgium the country used by Germany to invade France. Right, it's like <laughs> so, many battles, so many battles are fought in the area and, and places like Jaffa, which is, of course, a port and on the coast and on a major trade route, it's kind of like a perfect storm of, of geographic location that's going to make it very highly sought after, very much fought over, just like Jerusalem for often spiritual reasons is going to be fought over. It's much more isolated. As a matter of fact, you can, you can almost make a case that a more logical place for Israel's capital historically would have been a place like Jaffa. Right. Since all, it's like pretty much all major cities in the world are built on nearby waterways, either oceans or, you know, or rivers. Israel, Jerusalem is not. It's the mountains. It's kind of inaccessible. The only reason why there is besides the smack in the middle of the country is the fact that we are a nation that's also has a very central spiritual component in the holiness and centrality of Jerusalem on a spiritual level to the Jewish people makes us pick that place in contradiction to normal logic. Right. But like it's the, not defensible and it's not in the business route. It's, it's the spiritual plug. So. Right. Exactly. So exactly. Do we know so, how so, Jaffa got its name? Where does that name come from? I'm not sure the origins. Etymologically speaking, it's a good question. I should look that up. I don't know if it has any specific meaning. I mean, we all associate it with oranges. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's a newer thing. Here too. <laughs> uh, but, but Yafa, Jopa, whatever, however how you pronounce it, it's pronounced, it goes through different spellings, you know, Yafo in Hebrew and Jaffa in English. Um, again, the name is mentioned going back mm -hmm. very long ago. I'll check that up and see etymologically where's the, if we have any theory about where it first appears and what's connected 
I'm sure there's a logical explanation for it. I just am not aware of it. Hmm. Um, but it's first mentioned as sort of a satellite community controlled by that ancient, very powerful civilization, ancient Egypt. In the Telamarna letters, which are Telamarna was the capital of, I think, the eighth kingdom of Egypt. That was it was the capital city of Egypt under Achenaton, uh, who was the Egyptian pharaoh who decided to exclusively worship uh, Amon-Re, the sun god. People often say he's the first monotheist. He wasn't a monotheist. He just decided to, instead of worshiping you know, a couple hundred gods, he decided to right. bet on one. Uh, so he for a, he moved the capital, and for, for a short period of time, you had exclusive worship of just the sun god. Uh, when he died, that capital was abandoned, and that whole singular worship of, of one deity was also dropped. But in those Telemarna letters, Jaffa is also mentioned. Hmm as a city and it's, and throughout history, it's gonna be conquered by many different people like Jerusalem is. Um, and uh, again, because of its strategic importance, it's always gonna be an area, uh, also geographically, it's not only on the coast, it's also on a hill. I mean, those of us who are familiar with Jerusalem, all you gotta do is walk in Jerusalem, ride bicycles or run a marathon in Jerusalem to realize it's really hilly. You know, right? It's like that's why there's so many more. I, I was more always stunned when I would hear about the Jerusalem Marathon. I'm like, I can barely walk there. Never mind, yeah, like exactly. run. Plus, a lot more bicycles in Tel Aviv, and a lot more bicycle routes because flat places like Amsterdam. You go to Holland, the bicycles rule. Right. Um, Tel Aviv, the coastal plain of Israel, is extremely flat. It's like at sea level, and Jaffa happens to go up about up to about 120, 130 feet, which also strategically makes it. Uh, important and defensible because to be on a flat area in the coast it's, it's not so easy to protect so be a a port and be uh, a hill is a good combination and today if you go to the city of jaffa in the middle of the city it's kind of like this green area that rises up in the middle that's the tell um and a tell t-e-l not t-e-l-l it's a unique form of uh, a feature a unique, a unique form of archaeology that's only in the, the ancient near east and it tells an artificial mound created by successive layers of civilization, living one on top of the other, often in the case of Israel, because there's a water supply underneath, like a spring that you can't move away from. Anyone read the book, The Source by James Michener? It's actually talking about, it's actually a kind of a historic, a fictional account based on Megiddo. Uh, but the idea that you can't move away from the spring. So as the city's destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, it, it, it just rises over the spring and you get these very elaborate water systems. If, if you've been to any of these cities like Tel Beersheva or Tel Mida, they go down and down and down, like often the spiral staircase that goes down. It's really cool. Wow. But in Jaffa's case, it has more to do with the fact that it's located on a hill and it's rebuilt and destroyed, rebuilt and destroyed in the same hill over and over again. But you, and there is, if you go to Jaffa, it hasn't been that extensively excavated but there are excavations you can see of uh, gates that go back to the Egyptian period. It's just been redone. I was there recently. I hadn't been there for a long time because of COVID, but I see they've, they've covered over some of the archaeology because it wasn't that interesting and restored a little bit of it. So you have an ancient archaeological site smack in the middle of So it Jaffa. sounds like, like what you're describing is like if you were to cut it in half, right, from the top to the bottom and remove one half, you would literally see like sandwiches, like layers of civilizations, yeah. one on top of the other, kind of like a cake. Exactly, exactly. It is literally a layer cake. And um, when you go to an archeological dig, you see that you always lay out a site as a graph. You leave 
lines of, you always leave strata layer in the middle. Like you put sandbags out, sandbags out like graph paper and you dig down precisely because you want to know the layers. And when you work in an archeological dig, as you go down, you put everything in a specific bucket, which has a tag, which gives you the locus of where it is. And they also come and they survey it to give you the depth because you want the context to know where it is. But literally, it's sort of like you see that people do these things with like ice cores in the Arctic. Hmm. You can tell about the climate and the rain and, and things by drilling through and labeling or the, you know, the rings of a tree. You do the same say. thing, which is why yeah, archaeology is cool. always done um, top down. And, hmm. as it's, and it's been perfected as a, as a science. Uh, that's the way you do it. So anyway, you dig in Israel and generally most of the tells are never completely excavated. Like your Mount Moriah, which is a tell, the city of David is maybe 15% excavated. Jaffa, I think, is much less. But again, it goes back a very long period wow. of time. And that period of time, historically, is when the Jews would be more or less Middle Bronze period is Abraham. But we fast forward in history um, to later Egyptian history. That's when we are slaves in Egypt. We leave Egypt. And Jaffa still, who's occupying the area? The Canaanites. It's not Egyptians necessarily living there. And ancient empires would expand into other people's territory and generally not settle their own people in those areas, but rather just, you know, conquer them and make them pay taxes as vassal states. So the people occupying all these places in the land of Israel are uh, Canaanites, who are, it's kind of a generic term used to describe uh, seven different groups of people who occupy 31 city-states that are mentioned in the book of Joshua. Um, that are independent countries as a more modern example. If you look at Italy or Germany before they became countries in the 19th century, they became states very late in history. Um, you know, you go to Italy and you had Genoa and you had Florence and you had Rome and you had Naples and, and, and Venice. These were independent countries. Um, they had a certain cultural connection, linguistic connection, but they were independent states. So the same thing you had. So when we leave Egypt, um, the late bronze period, 3,300 years ago, the Exodus narrative, you know, we wander in the desert for 40 years and then Moses dies and Joshua takes over. And there's the book of Joshua is basically, the importance of that book is it gives us the story of the conquest and the settling of the land and the tribal inheritances, which is why, you know, the rabbis say, even if Mashiach had come, the Messiah had come 3,000 years ago, we'd still need the book of Joshua just to give us the map of the land of Israel, who, which tribes are supposed to live where. Um, right. And, you know, because that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to maintain our separate tribal identities today. We don't know that anymore. And is Yafo mentioned jo in Joshua at all? That is. It is mentioned in the book of Joshua. And it is, it's, it's given to the tribe of Dan. Hmm. Um, but if you look on uh, where Dan ends up, Dan ends up all the way up north. Um, Tell Dan, which is in the border with Syria, what happened? The, the Danites moved because even though we're supposed to conquer the land of Israel, not to go into all the history of the book of Joshua, the mistake we make is we don't throw all the Canaanites out. We leave pockets of Canaanites in the land of Israel um, against what God says. And that's going to come back to haunt us because it's also a launching point for attacks against us and also for the reinfusion of the, the pagan immorality and idolatry of the Canaanites is going to seep back into the Jews and cause us a lot of spiritual and moral problems, which are going to pay the price of later. But also there's other people living in the land of Israel besides these, these seven Canaanite nations. There's the Philistines, not the Goldsteins. The Goldsteins are Jewish. The Philistines are not so much. Are, are seafaring <laughs> people. Yeah, that, where, there's a lot of debate about where they come from. They migrate from across the uh, Aegean uh, 
pre-Greek civilization, Mycenaean civilization. They're mentioned all the way back in the book of Genesis. Abraham and, and Isaac hang out with these guys. Um, the Plishtim, as they're called. Could be there were waves of Philistine migration, seafaring people looking for trade. It also could be they're linked to the, the largest volcanic explosion ever recorded in human history, which is not Krakatoa, east of Java in the 19th century, which is a massive explosion. It was the explosion of the island of Thera 3,600 years ago. Hmm. Of, what, of what's left of Thera, they think that may have ended the Mycenaean civilization, basically, and the survivors may have migrated to greener pastures. But if you go to the island of Santorini today, which I think after Bali is, um, I'm hearing saying, can't hear well, you are dropping out every few minutes. Is that true? I'm dropping out. Uh, I can hear, but- okay, uh, Alan, you're gonna have to go back and listen to the recording. Hopefully it's being recorded properly, I apologize. Um, but the, 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 I'll move closer to the mic. I don't think that's the issue though. The, uh, if you go to the island of Santorini today, which after the island of Bali, I think is the second most visited tourist island in the world. It's just a rim of the outer part of the island. The rest is blown up. The Mediterranean sits in the middle. Um, so that could be, that's where Thera used to be. Anyway, the Philistines settle on the coast of Israel. They settle in the south of Israel. Uh, they will live in the area of Gaza, Ashdod, Gat, Ekron, um, Ashkelon. These are all Philistine cities, the Philistine five cities of the Philistines. Um, they're going to be our nemesis for a very long period of time. But the Philistines were also, by the way, it's funny because in modern sort of lexicon, Philistines are considered to call someone a Philistine is to kind of call them uh, primitive. The reality is it's very clear from the book of Judges that the Philistines were technologically more advanced. Hmm. Uh, later period of history, the Iron Age, which comes after the Middle Bronze, you go from copper to bronze to iron. Interesting little point that the, the idiom we use of having the edge in technology comes precisely from metal technology. Hmm. Um, as you go to metals that are stronger and keep an edge for longer, uh, that gives you better tools, like plows and swords and plowshares, you know, and better weapons. Right, so, now, now, uh, we're the in the now we're in the Silicon Age. Yeah, now we're in the, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the Philistines had better technology and they were, they were superior culture, seafaring superior culture, foreign invaders into the land of Israel that were fighting with all the way through until two and a half thousand years ago, they disappear. But the, 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 they're always encroaching on and pushing us away from our coastline, even though it's supposed to be part of the biblical boundaries of Israel. Uh, and the tribe of Dan just gets fed up <laughs> with the pressure and they, and they leave. They, they, they abandon their, their tribal territory and just migrate up north and capture this Laish and settle up in the northern part. Right. So they're going to be there. And we're talking about what is, uh, you know, the period of Judges, 440 years. And as we even get to um, the... When, when David comes and David and Solomon come, these are people who are very strong, especially David is a strong military conqueror. He subdues all of the, you know, foreign the countries around. He has like a little mini empire. So it becomes part of, of uh, Jewish controlled territory. Jaffa is, which was part of Dan, now comes back into Jewish hands. Okay. And uh, when King Solomon builds the temple, we're told that he brings the cedars of Lebanon through Jaffa. Which is a port. You got to. You don't want to schlep giant cedar trees down. You know, it's much easier to put them on a boat and, and ship them down the coast. And the is problem, that the main thoroughfare then to Jerusalem at that time? Like Jaffa's the port. And yeah, I mean the only other port. If you look at there. Well, the problem with Jaffa also going to the geography. It's sitting on this trade route, and the coast is you know the travel route on land. Uh, as a port, 
if you look at Israel, ports generally have a natural port feature like a bay because you have tides and currents that make it very hard to dock ships. Um, Jaffa has a little of that, but it's a shallow water port, which makes it very problematic. You can't get big ships that have, are sit in the water very deeply into Jaffa. It's going to be a problem all the way up to the, you know, the 19th and early 20th centuries that often these ships have to, like, again, going back to Santorini, Santorini, you, you kind of sail into the, the middle of this caldera, this like, crater caused by the volcano exploding. The, the ships, any tourists have done this, know what I mean? The ships park out in the middle of the water, and then they take little ferries in. Mm. because it's too shallow same thing with jaffa so is i don't know how the they, same I'm is that sure the same people. in akko in the north is is akko no, you have, you have less akko is a deeper akko has a deeper the haifa bay which has haifa to the south as a very big bay as a natural bay and and akko to the north is a much better natural port feature right. but it's a lot further away right you know today it's an hour and a half by car to get from Jerusalem, but in, yeah, that's days travel to schlep things down. So they were schlepped down to Jaffa and then schlepped uphill. And that's going to be a common, armies are going to do the schlepping. They're going to land there at different periods of time in history and also do that. So under the reign of King, of King David and later King Solomon, it's going to be an, a Jewish controlled port. I mean, also, you know, King, you know, King Solomon has a port in, in, uh, down in Aqaba which is today the area of Elat, called Etzion Gavr, it's mentioned in the Bible. So he's mm -hmm. got a big empire with ports in the Red Sea and port in the Mediterranean. So, but again, after, this is the Iron Age, after we get to, um, uh, you know, the Assyrian, when, when Israel splits into two kingdoms, uh, it, it's gonna be, we're gonna be vassal states. The Northern and Southern kingdoms are gonna become a vassal state of the Assyrian and later the Babylonian and Persian empires. And they're gonna, these other empires will often peel away parts of the country and give it to like the Assyrians, for instance, when they invade Israel, which they do multiple times when they try and take Jerusalem, they take during the reign of King Hezekiah, this big Assyrian invasion. He basically takes away Jaffa from the, Judea, from the kingdom of Judah and gives it to the Phoenicians. Phoenicians are another interesting people who are, we're not sure their origin. Some people think they're related to the Canaanites, but they're basically another seafaring people who are based in Tyre and Sidon, which are in Lebanon of today. And uh, in exchange for a Phoenician fleet, Sancherev, the emperor, I believe I got my information correctly, uh, will give them a port in Israel because seafaring peoples love ports. So it'll kind of be like uh, taken away from uh, the Jewish people and become an independent, like a free city. And, and that's going to, that's actually, you know, and we know that we get Israel's destroyed. This Northern kingdom goes into exile. The Southern kingdom, eventually 130 years later, the same thing is going to happen. Um, we come back in the second temple period. Uh, it's also going to be um, under the Persians. It's going to be a, uh, continue to be this, a non-Jewish controlled city. Hmm. When the Maccabees in the Hanukkah story who fight off the Greeks, I think from someone right from Maureen Katz, I think the Phoenicians built, they have, everyone built up. The port was built and reconstructed and deconstructed multiple times. But after the very long struggle against, uh, because after the Persians, when the Jews returned second temple period, the first four decades of Persian controlled the land of Israel. Um, later under when, after the Maccabean revolt, which lasts for more than two decades, they established a dynasty that's going to rule for over 100 years and the descendants 
you know, Simon the Maccabee, who's one of the Maccabee brothers, his mm-hmm. descendants, whose name is Yochanan Horkanya, John Herkinus, is going to expand by the little kingdom of Judah is going to be independent after the Maccabean struggle is going to be landlocked. We're not going to have control of the, of the coast and you don't want right. landlocked. It's not great. So he's going to expand southward, northward and westward and um, basically retake Jaffa and make it another a Jewish controlled port again. But during the Maccabean struggle, when the Greeks are controlling the land of Israel, they use it to land their armies, the Seleucid Greeks, who are the occupying power that we fight against in that struggle in the second century before the common era, are gonna land their armies there and march them up uh, the 443 road of today to try and take Jerusalem and try and crush the Jewish revolt, which is the guerrilla army of Judah Maccabees based in the hills. Um, and he could, all the major battles the Maccabees fight are basically Judah ambushing Greek armies trying to make their way up the hills there. So once that's Judah, he dies in battle, then Simon, his brother, takes over, and then his son, John Hyrcanus, will recapture it and make it a Jewish port city again. So you can see it's changing hands over and over again, but it does end up back in control of, of Jewish hands for a while. And then, of course, in 63 BC, the Romans show up under Pompey Magnus. They land there. And uh, they marched their armies to Jerusalem and absorbed Israel after about 100 years or so of independence or nominal independence back into. So we lose our independence and now we're the Roman province of Judea. So it goes back and forth and back and forth. Right. And, uh, and if we fast forward like 100 years to the Great Revolt that starts in 66, because, you know, Herod the Great, uh, is granted uh, in the, he rules from 37 to 4 BCE under the Romans. He's a client king. Mm-hmm. He will build uh, a port on the coast south of Haifa called Caesarea Maritina, which is a much more impressive port. That's made by, like the, the Romans discovered that volcanic ash put in frames underwater hardens underwater into like concrete blocks. Only the Romans discovered this kind of stuff. Wild. So he, the, the, where Caesarea is built today, no longer functions as a port, but it has no natural port feature. It needs a jetty to break up, you know, the tidal flow. So he builds this massive uh, port, which is much more impressive than Jaffa ever was. Mm-hmm. And I think that the center of trade in the land of Israel will will move to Caesarea Maritina, which 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 he called Sebastos named after Augustus, who was his patron. And that'll become the main port city. I'm sure Jaffa will continue to be used as a port, but this is a much more impressive port. And in its heyday, it will be as large as the two other largest ports in the Mediterranean Roman world, which was a Roman sea by this point. Rome controlled the entire Mediterranean from North Africa, all the way around the Middle East, Turkey, all the way to Spain. Um, and that's gonna be, um, it's gonna, it's Piraeus and uh, Ostia. Ostia in Italy and Piraeus outside Athens are going to be the two big ports in the Western European Roman Empire. And in the East, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, Caesarea Maritina, which is a really interesting archaeological site to, uh, to visit. But Jaffa will continue to be a Jewish city in Judea, the Roman province. And we fast forward to the Great Revolt. This is way after Herod's dead and gone. Um, when Rome goes back to direct rule of the land of Israel under the procurators who were quite oppressive and abusive and corrupt. Um, Jaffa is one of those cities that is going to join in the revolt against the Romans Mm -hmm. and be used as a launching site for pirates to raid Roman shipping because 
the main source of food for the Roman Empire was the grain of Egypt. And, and, and who are the people of Jaffa at that point? Who's living there? Jews, the Jewish controlled city. And Jewish pirates. There's going to be Jewish pirates throughout history. Jewish pirates in the Caribbean. We should talk about that one day. It's a really interesting topic. Using Jamaica as a launching point for pirate raids. That's the very, very slim connection between Jack Sparrow and Pirates of the Caribbean in the real story. Um, we'll use Jamaica to raid Spanish and Portuguese shipping in revenge for all the cruelty of the Spanish and Portuguese and the expulsions of 1492 and after. So too, Jewish pirates will use Jaffa as a launching place to ambush Roman shipping. So it's a, a vital interest to the Romans um, to uh, gain control of the Mediterranean and stop that. So Cestus Gallus, the Roman commander, will take the city of Jaffa during the Great Revolt and, and conquer it and, and level the city. And, and, and Josephus claims that he kills over 8,000 Jews when he takes the city. Wow. So uh, the, the, it, that's when the revolt is crushed, it comes back under control of the Romans as a port city. So you see it's changing hands being destroyed by many different people. So it's really right. like a little microcosm of, of the land of Israel. And, uh, and so when fast we, forward, yeah, yeah, sorry. So when we get into more modern times, like it's fascinating to me then, because I remember when I went to Tel Aviv for the first time and seeing Yafo, I was like, I don't understand why did they literally build two cities side by side? Because ah. it seems like, why not just build out Yafo and, and just make ah. that a larger city? So again, if, if, so, the, so the fast forward, we have to go through, we go from the Roman period to the Byzantine period, the Roman Christian period when it's ruled by the Eastern Roman Empire in the seventh century of the common era, um, when Islam is established, their year one is equivalent to 622, Islam expands rapidly and in six, and in uh, 638, they take Jerusalem, but two years earlier, the, the, the Muslims will conquer Jaffa and, and take it over and it will be absorbed into the Islamic world. This is pretty much the entire Middle East is going to be uh, absorbed into the Islamic world and, it, and different Islamic empires are going to rule the Middle East often fighting amongst each other. Their capitals are gonna be based in Cairo to the east, Damascus, Damascus to the east, Cairo to the west, uh, Istanbul, uh, places like that. Uh, but this will be part of these different Islamic empires. And again, it will be a port city uh, that will not, we don't know too much about it and it doesn't remain a very, it's not a major center. The Crusaders will capture, in 1099, the Crusaders arrive in the land of Israel, the first crusade and they will capture uh, the city of Jaffa. And the Crusaders had a big interest in A, a fortifying areas and B, controlling ports, because remember, the Crusaders are Europeans who are traveling across the Mediterranean. These Crusader armies needed plain, safe places to land and disembark. And then if they wanted to march up to Jerusalem, whatever, they, that's what they would do. But it will be controlled by the Crusaders until 1187 when Salah Adin. Uh, the Ayyubid conqueror who reconquers the land of Israel will take it back. The, Richard the Lionhearted takes it again. <laughs> it goes, in 1191, he signs a treaty, gets control of it. Then, the, then I don't know, the Mamelukes, Baybars in the third, early, third, mid 13th century will reconquer it finally. And by the end of the 13th century, all of the uh, Crusader, what was still held by the Crusaders, the city of Acre and places like that are taken retaken by the Muslims and never to be taken again by Christians until the British show up in 1917. And what's interesting is 
Um, because there's so many attempts by the Christians to take the land of Israel because they so needed uh, fortified areas to occupy from the 13th century onward, pretty much the, the, the different Muslim conquerors, whether it's the Baybars and the Mamluks or the Ayyubids will deliberately uh, destroy all the fortifications th throughout the land of Israel, especially on the coast, like places mm -hmm. like Caesarea, which was a crusader fortress, Akko, Acre, when it's taken finally, uh, Jaffa, they'll be, it'll be, they'll be leveled mm -hmm. and there'll be nothing built between on the coast of Israel because out of a fear that these crusaders are gonna come back again, these Europeans, and we don't, we don't wanna give them a foothold to right. establish themselves and, and why build if they're just going to destroy it again and not only that we but but it's, it's it, it proves to be a big blessing in disguise for us and because when zionism kicks in you know in the late 19th century these pieces of land are sitting there today beachfront properties like the most valuable real estate on the planet earth but these pieces of real estate are just sitting uh empty like just sand dunes today you see a place like tel aviv the most valuable real estate anywhere is going to be on the beach and, and they're just sitting empty, which right. enables places like, so, so Jaffa, the, the final Muslim conquerors are going to be the Turks. In 1517, mm -hmm. the Ottoman Turkish Empire comes to the land of Israel and they're going to take over and they're going to, and they're going to control Jaffa along with everywhere else, which is going to be a port city in the Ottoman Empire. Um, it's going to, by the, by the way, in, in 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte shows up. Before he's the emperor, he's an artillery officer in the French army, and he will take Jaffa from the Turks. He tries to take Acre. He's not successful. He does take Jaffa, and he takes the city, executes the Turkish garrison, takes them all to the sand dunes to the south and shoots them all, and then bayonets the ones that are left. And then a bubonic plague breaks out in the city. A lot of stuff goes on. But the city in the mid-19th century, in the early 19th century, sort of goes into decline. Then it starts to reestablish itself. But with the advent of Zionism, uh, the Jewish population starts to increase in the land of Israel. And these Jews who are coming in these waves of Aliyot starting in 1882 are all coming through, traveling across the Mediterranean, landing in Jaffa. And, and the population of Jaffa starts to increase significantly um, to a very, very big Jewish population. It was a walled city, by the way, until like, I think it's like 1870, finally the Turks break the walls on because it was so overcrowded. It was kind of a miserable place to live. So as the Jewish population increases dramatically, um, Jews need greener pastures. So starting in 1887, which is a mere uh, six years after the official, not even six years, five years after the founding of Zionism, which is always like 1882, um, they're going to make a neighborhood, which is a suburb of Jaffa, which is going to be called Nevet Tzedek. Which is a small, right. which is just if you look at Tel Aviv of today, it's not Tel Aviv. It's it's in between. Today it's part of Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. but it's it's just to the north of Jaffa, and it was it was like a Jewish area founded uh, outside this the, outside the main area of what is Jaffa in the sand dunes, a little bit to the north and a little bit a little bit in from the coast, as the first Jewish inhabited area, um, twenty two years before the city of Tel Aviv itself is founded. Mm -hmm. Fast forward as the Jewish population starts to increase dramatically, 1909. Um, that is when they decide we need to move out. So they have that famous, like the picture I showed before, this yeah. photograph. You can see if standing in the sand dune, so I think cool. it's in April 1909, and you can see these people with, with these black and white uh, little seashells drawing, they literally like do graph paper in the sand, and they just put parcels of sand. And they laid out 
what would be a a new totally Jewish city separate from the Arab population. We need to expand and we want a new city. And what went into Tel Aviv, and where does the name, originally was a Chuzat Bayit, the original association that was founded to, to make this city was the Chuzat Bayit. Um, Which translates as? Chuzat is like a, an, uh, your, is like an inheritance house. Like it's like a, it's like a, it's exactly how you translate it. Uh, but it's, it, it would be like, a, a, hmm, try to think of the word in English. For what I just, just went out of my head completely. The English, the exact English translation. Kind of like a family a, home? Sorry? Kind of like a family home? Like a. a uh, no, no, no. A chuzat is, a, no, it means like a, a chuzat. It's like a chuzat kever is the word used for when Abraham buys the cave of the patriarchs. It's like an acquisition. Or uh, oh. I'm, not thinking, I'm not sure the exact translation of the word, but but when in in Theodore Herzl writes this book of Neuland, after you know when Herzl, the driving force behind Zionism, you know he comes up with this book of Neuland, which means new old new land, which after the first Zionist conference, you know he's publishing his three. First, first he writes the Judenstadt, and then he writes in the very beginning of 20th century this book of Neuland. Which he got the name. He was inspired by the synagogue in Prague, which is called the Alt Neue, which means the Old New. Mm-hmm. And if it, in understanding why Tel Aviv was created, practically it was created because Jews needed to expand outside of Jaffa, which was an ancient city, overcrowded, you know, like little warrens and old houses. But it also fit into the ideology of of what Zionism was about to create a new uh, a new kind of Jew, a Hebrew. You know, Jews are people who lived in diaspora and squalid quarters of European cities. They were often originally ghettos. We're going to come to Israel and we're going to create, I always say, you know, the, the Jewish people, the oldest new nation on the planet Earth. But this was very much in keeping with the idea of we want to create a new modern, like European style city for the new modern Jew, but not a Jew who's disassociated from his roots, not talking about religiously, but historically, culturally, agriculturally, we belong in the land of Israel. So the plan for Tel Aviv was to create a modern European city with boulevards, your first, the original street was Rothschild Boulevard. I could show you pictures of what Rothschild Boulevard looked like in the early part of the 20th Incredible. century. Today, it's the most expensive real estate on the planet Earth. Um, it really but then is. it was it's, like it's it was TV. like a water tower yeah. and like uh, just one street. A kiosk, which is still there. <laughs> right. One street <laughs> in the middle of a sand dune. <laughs> but the idea was we're creating a European, a new cultural Hebrew, and we want to bring in the best of what Europe has. This is, you know, the after the Enlightenment, but there was a real infatuation with the European Enlightened culture, the idea of cafes and people, right. you know, artistic people sitting out in cafes and discussing philosophy and modern Hebrew literature. And, and some of the early cultural figures of, of Zionism were living in places like Ahuz Adbayat and, 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 and Tel Aviv. And this was the idea that we want to have, we need something new. So the, the Altnoi is a very, it's a German name. So Nachum Sokolov, the writer, he, he created the name Tel Aviv because Tel Aviv, it's actually taken from the book of Ezekiel. It's a city over in Mesopotamia. It's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. But what implies Tel is what I mentioned before, this modern, I mean, Tel is ancient, this artificial you know, mountain caused by successive layers of destruction, reconstruction. So it implies ancient. And Aviv, which is the Hebrew word for spring, is always associated with renewal. So it was perfectly in keeping with, we're not going to call Alt Neu City. You know, there was, one of the original ideas was called Herzliya after Herzl. 
who is the most significant person in creating a modern Jewish state in terms of the driving force. There is a Herzliya, and every city in Israel has a Herzl Boulevard, but instead of, uh, they named it. So it's basically the, the, the Hebrew translation of, of Herzl's uh, utopian novel, which is actually a great book to read. It's really mm. uh, entertaining to read Herzl's vision of what the Jewish state's going to look like a hundred years in the future kind of thing with wow. ships sailing on the Dead Sea. And, you know, some of it he got right, some of it he got really wrong. Wow. But this was all in keeping with this vision of creating this modern, um, this mm-hmm. modern Hebrew, this new kind of Jew in a new kind of city, mm-hmm. which was detached from the old overcrowded city and completely starting from scratch, but in our ancient homeland, like planting a new sapling on, a, on old right. earth. Right. And you see oh. how Tel Aviv grew. Yeah. Okay. Could the translation of, what did you say? Was Huznat Bayat? Huznat Bayat. Is it ancestral home? Yeah, it's like, a, it's like, a, yeah, it could be like, I, I, I'm just a word. Is I can, I'm like trying there. to get it in the back of my head, but it's, it's working. I should, like, so should we'll look, I should grab my phone there. and look at the translation <laughs> software so from Because again, the first time I think I saw in the Bible is buying it with the patriarchs. Right. But you see, Tel Aviv starts to develop very rapidly and soon it's going to take over in terms of population. Um, it's going to become larger than Jaffa, which, which is going to have a mixed Jewish Arab Christian population. Right. And the pictures are incredible. If you see from 1909 to 1919 and then to 1929, it's just astonishing. Yeah, it explodes, explodes. And when you get to the War of Independence, Jaffa has a very significant, you know, like I think before the War of Independence, 1930s, it's going to have, you know, like 50,000, something like that, Arab population, majority population is still going to be Arab, but a very significant Jewish and Christian, mostly Greek Orthodox populations, a lot of churches and monasteries in there. But with the British, you know, when you have the Balfour Declaration uh, in November 20, 1947, the British are preparing to pull out and the fighting's already starting before the British leave. Foreign armies couldn't invade, but Jerusalem Tel Aviv highway is cut off in the spring. Um, and the Arabs, and in the original partition plan, Jaffa was going to be part of the Arab land. Remember, the British kind of divided up Palestine into the areas where Jews had settled, which was basically the coast north of Jaffa and south of Haifa was the Jewish population, that area that was denuded of population from you know the Islamic period onward to keep the crusaders from coming back mm-hmm. uh the place like the hula valley which was a swamp and 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 the western galilee where there was a jewish population towards the coast and you know and mo- most of the rest of the country part of the negev also but most of the rest of the country including including jaff was supposed to be arab area and again because the arabs didn't accept the partition plan we already start attacking the jews so the the, the pre-state fighting organizations go on the attack. The Irgun especially was involved in trying to drive, you know, attacking the Arab population in Jaffa to drive them out, which is basically largely right. what happens. Before Israel's declared a state, there's this, this major, you know, uh, attacks by the Irgun into Jaffa to drive the Arab population. And a lot of the Arab population flees. And they're shooting back and forth and sniping. And it's a very interesting, um, there, there's actually a, a, a museum, an Itzel museum, the, the, the fighting is they, they have on on the coast of Tel Aviv. There's a there's a memorial site north there for the commemorating the fighting that went on in Jaffa. The British are trying to keep the side separated, but to make a very complicated story short, pretty much with before and during the War of Independence, the vast majority of the population, Arab population, was going to flee like they do in Haifa. Um, there's a big population exchange at this period of time. 
where the Arab world is going to uh, basically make make itself Judenrein, Jew free between 40 and 67. These very ancient Jewish communities, about 750, 800,000 Jews are going to be driven out of the Middle East between the War of Independence and the and the uh, and the and the 67 War. But even prior to that, in 1936. The, uh, the, there's going to be an Arab revolt against the British. There's going to be anti-Jewish riots in 1921. There's going to be anti-Jewish violence and, and the Arab stevedores who are unloading the ships. The Arabs are not happy with the British policy of allowing Jews into the land of Israel, even though the, the, the British pretty much by 39 are blocking most Jewish immigration. Right. So 36 right. to 39, there's going to be a revolt against the British. The British are going to crush it brutally in places like Jaffa, dynamiting houses and clearing out like these alleyway to separate you know, to make, so they can, they can get in and out. Um, but the, the Arab stevedores are going to blockade the port. They're going to, we're going to refer striking. We're not going to unload British and, and, uh, and Jewish shipping anymore, which causes wow. the, the, the pre-state Jewish population of Tel Aviv to make a port in Tel Aviv that's going to be in, in 1936, that's going to function until like 1965, and then be closed down when they open up the port in Ashdod. So basically, you're going to see Jaffa is going to wane in significance. The port basically is going to go out of use. Much bigger ports will be made in Ashdod and Haifa. Mm -hmm. Tel Aviv will grow into a huge city. The Eventually, right after, I think, 1949, officially, Tel Aviv is much larger than Jaffa. It's, they're going to want to incorporate Jaffa, ironically, into Tel Aviv. And by 1950, uh, I think it officially becomes a, uh, a suburb of Tel Aviv. And that Tel Aviv municipality, which is about 400-something thousand, is the center of what's called Gushdan today, which is Gush, going to take in the name Dan, going all the way back to the biblical roots, the tribe of Dan, even though Dan moved north. Uh, that Gush Dan area has got 60% of the population of Israel living in it. Wow. And it's not just Tel Aviv, it's got Petach Tikva and, and you know, Rehovot and Rishon Etzion and, 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 and all these different, that whole area, which is many municip municipalities, is all the center of which is Tel Aviv, has now become the economic center of the Jewish state. And Jaffa now is just a cute little kind of quaint, kind of all of South Tel Aviv, Nevet Sedek, the original neighborhood, and Jaffa kind of kind of run down and dumpy. But if since there still is a Jamia neighborhood in Jaffa that's quite famous, the Arab neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, but there's still, but now they've been very much gentrified, and the the the, the properties on the on the uh, on Jaffa's coastline are very, very sought after. It's kind of like the mm. old city of Jerusalem, just made right. with sandstone. A lot of artists living there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, really nice housing. And also Nevet Sedek, that original neighborhood, has become super quaint, really cool, very beautiful, artsy, nice place that has become really hot real estate. So Amazing. you fast forward to what was the sand dune in 1909 is now this unbelievable city with the skyline that is just exploding. Incredible. With a huge population, I think Tel Aviv, greater Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv is like the third largest municipal area in the Mediterranean today, one of the three biggest. So what was a sand dune became big, and what was this central city of Jaffa today still has a little dinky port, which is largely a cultural hub, like the port right. of Tel Aviv is. There are a few little boats that go in and out of it. Interesting, last little piece of trivia to throw in, the story of Perseus rescuing Andromeda from, from uh, Medusa. The one you turn, look at her face and you turn to stone because she had the snake hair. Mm -hmm. 
that's connected somehow to the, the rocks off of off of Jaffa Port. No kidding. <laughs> that's wild. Wanted to put a statue out there. There's still an Israeli flag sitting there. I don't know how that story got connected with it, but that's the Greek connection to the city. That's fascinating. But today it's just part of a, you know Greater Tel Aviv and a really quaint, nice cultural spot in what is the you know the the coast of Tel Aviv and wow. a, a cultural hub. So Incredible. It's come a long way. It's come yeah. a long way. That's right. What is, that's that's like, and and they're still building. You know, like you go to Tel Aviv, building, and, the, yeah, yeah. and the, the loudest sound you always hear is all the cranes and the construction. I, and I always say, Ellie, I'd love if I could ring back from the dead. There's a lot of people I like to meet, like Abraham and Moses for sure. But I don't. I think I'd be kind of afraid of those guys, um, <laughs> especially Moses. You know, his face glowed. You couldn't even look at it. But I would love to bring Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Yeah. who is the founder of modern, the resurrector of modern Hebrew, who lived in Jerusalem on Ethiopia Street, and, and Theodor Herzl, you know, the author of Alt Neuland, the, you know, the, the German translator of Tel Aviv. But love to bring them back. And to, these are people who lived a little over 100 years ago and just take them around, especially Tel Aviv. They're, they're more connected with modern Zionism than biblical Israel. I'd like to take them to Jerusalem also, but um, just to show them what, you know, the vision of what, uh, you know, when you have millions and millions of people living, like four million something people living in greater Gushdan area, uh, more than that, I think, it's probably closer to six million people living today, a whole where everyone's speaking Hebrew in a modern Hebrew yeah. city, uh, with, with, which is a cultural and technological and innovation hub in the world, it, it's quite miraculous. Really miraculous. So it really is the, the oldest new nation innovating in one of the oldest parts of the world that is so strategic in the ancient world and so central in terms of technology and innovation in the world today. So it's a really interesting end to the story. Incredible. They would certainly appreciate it. They would be blown away. Yeah, I would want to be there for that tour. That's pretty awesome. Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 